Good morning, North Sub. It's good to see everyone here this morning. So many um, bright, shining faces. And we're glad, too, to have the option of worshiping online. So if um, that's the option you're worshiping with us today, we're so happy that we have the technology to be able to do so. Um, today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 128. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there now as we begin to look at the message. Uh, this psalm builds up where Psalm 127 left off on. You can think of Psalm 128 as a companion psalm to 127. You may remember a few weeks back when Pastor Tim preached on Psalm 127, he asked you to write, what are you building on a set of blocks? And the blocks are here on display for you to, to look at. He asked, what were you building that week? And as you did so, he asked to imagine what kind of builder you are. And the three types were anxious, arrogant, or confident. We learned that regardless of your builder type, our work would not be successful unless our God was involved. Do you remember what you wrote on your block? What was it that you were building? Our understanding from Psalm 127 is that the building, whatever it was that was on your block, is in vain unless the Lord is in it. Or put another way, unless God is involved in your plan, you're not going to find an ultimate fulfillment or success through that plan. Now, building on that truth, we're going to be looking at Psalm 127 that says uh, we won't invite God into that plan, into that building process, unless we fear him. We won't invite God into that building process unless we fear him. Let us pray. Father, you are a mighty God. You deserve all of our honor and praise, and we pray that our hearts today will be soft to your truth. We pray that our worshiping would be pleasing to you. And we pray that we would grow in reverence of you. And that in all things, we would decrease and you would increase. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment, a young boy playing free at his home with a set of Legos, his favorite toy. He's building carefree. He's exploring. He's imagining. Whatever comes to his mind is his to obtain. He's free to build, he's free to explore, free to imagine, and he finds great pleasure in this freedom. Most of the time, this freedom, this sensation, is granted to him. But not when dad comes home. When dad gets home, that freedom is lost. It's replaced with fear. The boy tries to remain still, hoping, just hoping that dad won't see him. If I stand still enough, maybe I'll go undetected. Even as he tries to stay still, he can't help his body from shaking just a little bit. I wish that I was making this scenario up, but this is actually the story of too many young boys and girls around the world who have broken fathers who themselves had broken fathers, not able to cope with a life that God... Um, not able to cope with the life um, that they had, but taking it out 
instead on their families. I bring up that story to ask this question, is this the sensation of fear that you imagine when you hear, fear the Lord? Is the fear of the Lord something that should make you shake, something that should make you want to run away? Many of us have fears. Some of us are afraid of spiders. Some of us are afraid of heights. Unfortunately, some of us are afraid of our dads. Now, there is a real sense in which someone glancing at eternity should have a kind of fear that makes you tremble, a kind of fear left within you that says, I don't desire eternal damnation. I ought to be afraid of that. I ought to shake at that picture. And that can be a healthy fear if viewed with this perspective. Imagine with me the fear of someone jumping off of a plane, leading them to put on a parachute. That's a healthy fear. The fear of death, too, can lead someone to put on Jesus Christ as their eternal parachute. That can be a healthy fear. But that type of fear, we would say, is the fear for the unbeliever. The fear of judgment, of God's eternal death, um, an eternal separation from God. And we see it in Scripture, uh, Luke 12 Verse 5 says, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Or again, in Hebrews 10, verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for the believer, the fear of God is something very different. The believer's fear is a fear that says, I have so much respect for you, God. I have a reverence for you, God. I'm in awe of you, God. We see this in Hebrews as well, chapter 12, verse 28 through 29. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. This is the type of fear that is a motivating factor for us to surrender to the creator of the universe. It's not a fear that says, you better shape up when he's around, but it's a fear that says, I have so much respect for you, I want to please you in every way possible. John Piper says it this way, God is a joy and a refuge for those who cling to his neck, but he is a terror for those who flee. Last week, Paul Till preached on prayer for us, and he gave a wonderful picture of our God, uh, a God who is like a father that so badly wants to spend time with you and me that he invites us into prayer. Our God is not like the father of that little boy who is terrified at his walking in the room. So as we look at our passage today, I want us to reflect on the words of uh, John Piper. As you sit here, is your image of your relationship with God one of clinging to his neck because he's your dad and he loves you? Or are you running? Is he a God worthy of the honor and respect that our passage talks about? And if not, then he's probably not a God worth following. And the first verse is going to prove very difficult for us. 
Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. The little boy in our illustration didn't want to be like his father. He grew up resenting the fear that was placed inside of him, so he made an oath. I'm never going to be the kind of father like he was to me to my children. No one follows in the footsteps of someone that they're afraid of. Lucky for us, this passage is not referring to that kind of fear that makes a child shake when his dad walks in the room, but the kind that shows awe and respect. How do we know? Because the text doesn't say, how happy is the one who's afraid of hell? No, the fear that is in this text says, wow, God, is amazing. I want to follow him. In fact, verse 1 reiterates that truth. Did you catch that? If you are, or you are blessed if you fear God, or put another way, walks in his ways. It's saying the same thing twice. No one wants to be the person that they're afraid of. They want to be the person that they respect. The psalmist here is asserting that a reverence for God, a respect for God, is the foundation of his blessing. And if we are in awe of him, we begin to walk in his ways. And we'll see a change in our life. What kind of change? The kind of change that verse 2 talks about. If we walk in his ways, we will eat the fruit of the labor of our hands. When I was a teen, I had a friend who had... Uh, blackberries growing in his backyard, and every summer, like clockwork, we would pick them as they were ripe, with the knowledge that the more blackberries we brought in, the more pies his mom would make for us. Anyone who's gone berry picking knows this universal truth. If you go berry picking, you must eat along the way. So, of course, we did. Knowing that a pie would be waiting for us, we still chose to eat those berries right away. They were amazing. <laughs> they were so good. But we could have had so many more pies if we would have done the work of waiting. Both of them included labor. We had to go out there and pick, and that was a form of labor. But uh, making pies includes much more labor. And more than that labor, it took a labor of patience on our behalf. The end result would have been greater if we would have left room for that work. Our walk with God is filled with a similar work, a labor that produces fruit, and it's similar to the uphill march that the Israelites were on their way to worship God in our Psalms of Ascent. Our walk with God on this side of heaven is also oftentimes an uphill battle filled with work. For instance, in many, part of, many parts of the world, just being a Christian puts your life at stake. In our country, we're seeing religious freedoms that we've been blessed with for years come into question. These things might tempt some people to lose the fight in keeping the faith. Or what about our labor just to resist temptation? Take out exterior factors. What about the labor inside your heart? 
What, what, what happens when the right situation comes along to tempt you to make you do something that is against God's desire? Anyone who has fought temptation can tell you what a battle that truly is. But they'll also probably tell you how sweet the fruit is of fighting that battle. Much sweeter than caving to that temptation. Alistair Begg says it this way. We want things suddenly and dramatically, yet we recognize that you, God, may not do it dramatically or suddenly. Perhaps you might do it in the way that a farmer goes about his business. It's not an overnight success. Now, I bet if I came around after service or if I asked a few of you to come up right now and shared what your life was like before and after Christ, it would be a story of stark contrast. Probably you'd have stories of ways that God showed up that you never expected. Maybe he asked you to stretch, to grow. Probably he answered you much like a farmer works. Not dramatically, not suddenly, but over time and in season. This is just one of the many reasons why it's really important for us younger Christians to seek the wisdom and counsel of people who have walked with God for a lot longer than us. Their perspectives have been altered by the reality of experiencing in waiting. And when we ask them, how has waiting worked out for you? They might respond, it's been well with me. Verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. How is it going well? In the context of this passage, the original listeners in ancient Israel would have related well to the imagery that we're going to see throughout the passage, to a farm that produces well. We'll see in verse 3 and 4, a faithful spouse, children around the table. Wealth to the Israelites meant good crops. It meant a well-fed family. It meant a stable farm that I could pass on to my kids. The idea of prosperity in this text is not that they would live luxurious lives, but that their family would be in order, that they would be safe from temptations around the world, that God would take care of them. That's not the prosperity that many modern readers might think of when they think of their lives going well. The fruit of someone's labor today might look something more like money or a successful career or renown, fame. I want my name to go on forever. But the fruit of this sort has to come to an end. You, can take, you can't take any of those to the grave with you. Sometimes you'll hear people say that in the interest, their interest in fame is because their name can go on forever, but there's two problems with this. First, technically money and success and other labors of life can also go on past you, an inheritance can go on to your children and set them up for success. Uh, your business can continue to prosper and make money long after you've lived. So in that way, fame is actually quite similar to other worldly ventures. And the second way is even if your name is known by everyone for years and years to come, what good is that doing for you after the grave? Your enjoyment of fame ends the second your eyes close to eternity. That particular problem is actually uh, even worsened by generally the people who have that thought in mind because they don't believe in an eternality. So what would they care about people knowing about them later in life? So if the labor we're parta uh, partaking in bears fruit that only has the world in mind, we'll be left with nothing. But 
our text says walking with God has in mind a fruit that extends past us. Look with me for a few moments at some life scenarios. Path number one, we'll call it worldly success. What's the fruit? Money, probably. A name in a company that may or may not live long past my name does in history. Okay. How did I get there? What was my fear? Maybe I wanted to be known. Maybe I wanted people to respect me. To get there probably meant long nights, less time with family and friends, ignoring relationships to pursue status within my company, and what am I left with at the end of that path? No community, no comfort from a loved one because I've abandoned all my loved ones along the way. The fear that drove me to that worldly success, the fear of being known, ultimately doesn't happen. I'm not truly known because I drove the people that could have known me away. Let's explore another path, path number two. We'll call it physical success. Maybe I want to look great. So what's the fruit of that? I've got a perfectly chiseled body. I've got very little wrinkles, head full of hair. It's just luscious, curly locks. How did I get there? What was my fear? Maybe I didn't think I was good enough. Maybe I felt like I needed to look a certain way to be accepted. So what do I do to get there? I work out all the time. I've got a perfectly curated meal plan. And I make sure that every hair loss and wrinkle cream out there is on my shelf at home. What am I left with at the end of this path? I'm fighting a losing battle with time. There's an interesting statistic that 10 out of 10 people age. You can't fight it. One more path, our last one. We'll call it the picture-perfect family. I want everyone to know that nothing goes wrong in my family. What's the fruit? My social media has endless photos of the perfect, happy life. I'm stressed, however, by this impossible task. Never being out of control. My kids will never be out of control. Yet, I'm met with extreme embarrassment when my kid misbehaves in public or when he shares stories of what happens at home in our not-so-perfect life, or the frustration when he won't pose for my family photo that I want so badly. As a dad who loves his children and who loves photography, I struggle really hard with perfect family photos. It didn't take long for our oldest to realize that once he could walk, he didn't need to stand still. And if you spent any time with my eldest, you'll know that his least favorite thing is to stand still. Pray for me as I bury the golden calf of perfect family photos. But the point is this. The fruit of any labor that doesn't have eternity in mind will fail us. That fruit, along with the object of that fear, will ultimately die. Again, Alistair Begg has a word that may help us. A brief glance at social history over the last few years will show us. Magazines, newspapers, media, they're overflowing with stories of people who are on the paths of success, reach the top only to realize there was only emptiness waiting for them. They only discovered they were not satisfied. It's not just the three that I described, it's any worldly pursuit. And our history is full of examples that did not fulfill. 
I want us to look really quickly at the contrast that we see between a labor in vain versus what's promised in this text. We only have to go back one chapter. In 127, verse 2, it reads, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. We're warned in the passage just before about the anguish that someone might experience by merely trying to work hard without the fear of the Lord. And encouraged in our passage by a promised joy that fearing the Lord can give. Put it another way, if, the fear, if our fear is rooted in God who has our eternal well-being in mind, we're satisfied with a fruit that doesn't die. A fruit that is good for us. A fruit that is well with us. If this passage is true, it offers a promise that will be fulfilling. And we're going to cover the next couple of verses a bit quicker because I don't want to get caught in the weeds, but I want us, I want us to see the bigger picture. And if we, um, if we got caught in the weeds there, uh, we might miss it. The fruit of the labor, according to this text, is in two parts. The first stems out into the second. It begins with the blessed home, verses 3 through 4. Read it with me. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus the man shall be blessed who fears the Lord. Remember that little boy who feared his father in an unhealthy way? The rest of the family was not like the picture that we're seeing in this text. The wife, too, was fearful of that father in a way that caused her to be a shell of, one, of what she once was. Instead of being full of life like this fruitful vine, she was emptied, hollowed out by his torment. His kids were not full of excitement. His kids were not full of youthful exuberance like olive shoots, but instead they were stunned in their ability to grow freely. The picture in this text is a household full of life, thriving. But this doesn't just happen. Look back to verse 1. It doesn't say, blessed is everyone who at one moment in time feared the Lord, or occasionally he decides to walk in the ways of the Lord. No, it says, walks in his ways. We must be continuously seeking his way. And if the blessing, uh, the blessing of the thriving house will follow, there's a hymn that we all know well that gets this just right. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It's not given right away. You must seek. Seeking is a process. It's not a one-time thing. Walking with God is a lifelong practice. As that walk plays out in our life, we're met with an even greater joy, a greater blessing, the prosperity of God's people and a life to witness it. This text leaves us with one of the most popular benedictions, and it goes like this. It's verse 5 and 6. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. 
the psalmist is saying it's possible for you to witness this promise. It's possible for you to witness the product of this fruit. It says, may you see the prosperity. How? Verse 6, by witnessing it through the life of your children and their children. I'm not a grandfather yet, but I absolutely cannot wait to be. If you ask grandparents how it is being a grandparent, most often you'll get something like this. It's my reward for parenting. They don't necessarily mean that they didn't like parenting, but in this statement, we hear this truth ringing out loud and clear. My grandchildren are like a reward to me. I love being around them. They're a blessing. You can imagine the Israelites' joy, right, as they're ascending this mountain and their children and their children's children are running around their feet. The wisest among them might be thinking, what a joy that I now get to experience this walk with all of my family. What a joy that I'm embarking on this journey and now they're embarking on the same journey that I've taken so many times. What a joy that I get to see my kids and my kids' kids worshiping my God. Some of the favorite, my favorite moments in life is hearing the humble renditions of my son um, speaking the Lord's Prayer, practicing a memory verse from kids' church, or singing the B-I-B-L-E, yeah, that's the book for me. As much as I enjoy hearing him say that, I imagine I'm going to enjoy hearing his kids say that even more. And I've heard more sentiments like that in this very church, coming from the family of our congregation. What a blessing it is to be with my grandchildren. But if we stop here, I think we're actually doing the text a disservice because I don't think this is just for the nuclear family. If you call this your home church, you're bound to find that we often celebrate our church family. It's no accident. It's scriptural teaching and lived experience being realized. It's why a few weeks ago, Lee Iklov, when he preached, rejoiced in seeing the fruits of his and Norsub's ministry, amazed and celebrating with old friends and family that he so dearly loves. It's why our global partners, the Van Cleve family and the Till family, come back and reminisce overjoyed to see everyone. How sweet is it that this church family right here, Norsub, gets to see this collective blessing in God's church. To see students of the faith like Maggie maturing and leading us in, in uh, worship. It's no wonder that she's been inundated with welcome and praise because we're her family. Some of you may consider yourself her spiritual grandparent. And by the way, these are only a handful of examples from the last few months. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we have a heavenly view of the things that went on here and around the world? Probably you've heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water, right? Usually it's understood to mean that family is more important than friends or family comes first. The problem is that this phrase actually comes from and is completely different from the original phrase. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker 
than the water of the womb, meaning that a covenant promise, when it's made, is stronger than your family ties. This is exactly what we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's exactly what we see in the kingdom of God, that we are grafted into his family. That means that the promises made of this text are for everyone because we are the family of God. I have a little confession to make. Um, the little boy in that story that was so afraid of his father was me. My mother told me stories about how I was visibly shaken when he would walk into the room. And to this day, my image of our heavenly father is tainted by the image of my earthly father. I wonder how many of us have a tainted image of our heavenly father because of the brokenness that we've experienced here on earth. According to this passage, we're promised a vibrant, healthy home, a life to see God at work in his people. But they all start with an action item in verse 1. They come to those who respect who revere the Lord. Remember earlier we said that a reverence of God is the foundation for his blessing. When we are in awe of him, we begin to walk in his ways and we will see our life changed. If you're someone like me, you might begin to wonder, how is that possible? Why would this heavenly father be worthy of my respect? How can I begin that process of being in awe of a heavenly father when I've just seen so many broken fathers? What about this God deserves my awe and reverence? It's a fair question. We worship a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the disconnection between the Father and us is actually quite common. What about this God deserves our awe and respect? The answer lies in Jesus Christ the Son of God. Jesus in every way respected his Father, as the text asks. Jesus in every way walked in his ways. Jesus lived a perfect life. Yet, he didn't receive the blessing of his labor. He didn't eat the fruit of the labor of his hands. Instead, Jesus ate the fruit of a sinner's labor. Jesus became the sacrifice for all of us that can't live up to what Psalm 128 talks about. Because here's the truth. Verse number one should scare us. Blessed is the one who walks in his ways. Which one of us have done that perfectly? We all fall short. And yet we have a loving heavenly father that sends his son to cover that cost. That is a God worthy of respect. That is the God who made the cosmos. That God caused our lungs to be filled with air. That God defines the laws that govern our universe and yet is the same God who cares so deeply and loves us so intimately that he sacrifices his own son.
if you don't know Jesus today and you've ever wondered, why should I? My prayer is that today you've heard about a God that loves you, a Father who loves you and deserves that respect and awe, one that you can be amazed with. I pray that we would sit in awe of him today, knowing that he is holy, he loves you, and he wants to know you. Let's pray. Father, we sit in awe of your glory. We love and respect you. And we ask that you help us to walk your ways, O oh God. We repent of the ways that we fall short. And we turn to you, Lord, and praise you for your work on the cross. We pray for our family. We pray for our church family, our children, and our children's children that they would come to trust in you, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. Would your spirit fill anyone making that commitment today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.